Well, please join me in Galatians 6. We will indeed finish Galatians today. It's always, I know it's different when you're in the congregation, at least it always was for me, but when you've gone through and written thousands of words and you come to the end, it's a sense of accomplishment and a sense of sorrow that you're moving on. But I am excited. We're going to look at uh, six weeks in the Proverbs, and then we'll move on to the the uh, book of Acts, and that, that's the plan, um, Lord willing. And so I'm excited for both of those series, and uh, grateful to God for this series in Galatians as we wrap up this morning. Uh, let's pray as we go to God's Word. Our Father, we do thank you for this wonderful epistle. Thank you for uh, commissioning your servants, Paul, to uh, write this for our benefit. And we uh, pray that you bless us this morning by your word and by your Holy Spirit, and uh, that you would indeed grow us in grace uh, by your word this morning. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Galatians six eleven through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would force you to be circumcised and only in order that it may not, they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that may, they may boast in your flesh." But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the word has, world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. question I began the series with, I went back and looked, was how can we be made right with God? The most foundational, important question, if we believe there is a God and if we believe he interacts with us and that we are sinners, how can we be made right with God? How can we approach a holy God? How can we enjoy fellowship and communion with a transcendent God? How can we be numbered amongst those who would call God Father, and how can we bear good fruit for God's pleasure? These are important questions if we believe God exists and that we're sinners. How can we have peace with God? That's the question that Galatians answers, and it answers it in a black and white way, black and white clarity, but without losing any of the beauty and richness of full-spectrum color. Galatians answers the question that justification is by faith apart from works of the law. Black and white clarity. 
That's the main course. But it is a multi-course meal, which we would never be able to finish in this life. The other fine courses and drinks and desserts laid out on the table of Galatians include the richness of adoption, the complexity of lifelong sanctification, the nourishment of redemptive history, all this fortified by the covenant faithfulness of God to his promises. This is the meal prepared for us by King Jesus and served by his servant Paul. The beauty of our salvation is as simple and as rich as the cross itself. And the letter of Galatians is as a fine a defense of the gospel of Christ as we can find. So as we conclude our study and the proclamation of this letter this morning, I want to consider uh, once again the question that's at the root of the letter. How can we have peace with God? Paul summarizes here in his conclusion what he said throughout the letter. If you look carefully, pretty much everything that's in the conclusion is, uh, is, is a summary form of what's in the letter. I'd actually like to work backwards this morning, and I think it'll be clear why we'll work backwards through the text. Um, I'd like to begin in verse 16 and answering this question, how can we find peace with God, and then work back. Uh, through verse 11, and then we'll return to 17 and 18. Uh, So the most simple answer to the question, how can we be made right with God, is He makes us right with Him. We are recipients of the covenant faithfulness of God. And that's the first point this morning from verse 16, that how can we be made right with God? We receive the covenant faithfulness of God. Receive is an interesting first imperative to begin with. I mean, what what other verbs come naturally to human beings when we're talking about being made right with God? Do, change, give, serve, sacrifice, search. These are verbs that we're told by the world that will help us be made right with God, but not receive. Receive. That's the most distinguishing and flooring mark of the Christian answer to the question, how can we be made right with God? How can we have peace with God? Is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is His to withhold and it is His to give. And it's a pure unmerited gift of grace that no one may boast. So that's the first way we have peace with God, is that we receive the covenant faithfulness of God. Paul here wishes the blessing of this gift upon the people of Galatia in a way that reminds us that it's not just a gift, but it's a gift that flows from this everlasting covenant faithfulness of God that we see throughout Scripture. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Contrary to the Judaizers who would have said that keeping the ceremonial laws like circumcision were the means by which we obtained uh, entrance into to Abraham, Paul identifies the people of God in different terms. The Israel of God. God's promises to his covenant people will be fulfilled. 
all the promises given in ancient times to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob will be fulfilled to his people. His people are no longer marked out by ethnic or cultural boundaries, but by Christ, who is the true Israel, who is the son of Abraham. As Paul said in verse 29 of chapter 3, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. The Israel of God is the church. Those who are in Christ. And we should be confident that this covenant blessing uttered here is for us, for all who are in Christ. Peace and mercy are received by us because God promised them to his people long ago and he will not renege on his promise. So when we're confronted with our own sin, when we descend down down that dark hole of doubt, am I really good enough for God? Uh, remember that you're not. <laughs> Peace with God is not a reward for our faithfulness to God, but a gift of God to be received, a gift of His covenant faithfulness. We don't earn peace and mercy by our fine, upstanding character, but we are given it by the character of God. His covenant faithfulness, His steadfast love, His mercy. So that first point then is in answer to the question, how can we be made right with God, is receive. Receive the covenant faithfulness of God. The Israel of God is also called by Paul in this verse, in verse 16, um, all who walk by this rule. All who walk by this rule. What rule? And that's what we find in verse 15, which leads us to our second point, is that we measure our walk by the gospel rule. Measure our walk by the gospel rule. The rule which is uh, the, by which the blessed walk, in verse 15, is for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. When I read that, the word rule, like, what does that mean? Is he just saying, is this another law? Is this a, uh, another precept? But really, that, that word rule, it's the word canon, canon, from which we get canon of Scripture, which means measuring rod, measuring stick. This is the measuring tape by which you measure your life. We have to measure our lives by something. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the standard? What is the rule? What is the guide? How do we know we're hitting the mark? If our family and friends or, God forbid, our enemies is the standard by which we measure our lives? That's scary. If their conduct is setting the bar for our conduct... That's very dangerous. So Paul gives us the standard and rule. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, in a time and place where circumcision is sort of a non-issue, how can we abide by this rule? And I've, I've taken in this sermon to calling it the gospel rule. We, we might put it like this, that what counts before God is not the things we have or haven't done, but the things that he has done. Amen. That is the gospel rule. That's the gospel standard. 
Blessed of God are those who live by the rule that he's given us, that what God does in us is all that matters before him. Uh, Kelly's grandpa's funeral was this week, and at the reception, uh, the day's pastor, Tim, who's a good guy, um, he had some comments about Willis, Kelly's grandpa, and we were always somewhat up in the air about his salvation. And um, Tim Tim presented something that he said, this is why I believe Willis is in heaven. And it was so encouraging. He said, we had conversations, especially since his wife Cleo died, and we were We've been talking, and he was asking questions about heaven, and Tim explained to him that it's not our works that get us into heaven, but it's God's grace. It's what God has done. And he said that clicked for Willis at one point. He said, it's not my works. Oh, (laughs) what a blessing. So that's the point. It's not our works. That's the gospel. It's so simple. God's sovereign act of recreation within a human soul is the saving act. It's, even as God created the heavens and earth, even as he will recreate the new heavens and the new earth by himself without our help, that's the act of recreation. Humanity creates many wonderful things. We've, we've discovered many wonderful things. Not one of them has been made ex nihilo. We're all making things out of what God has made. Likewise, we will not add one atom of our own creation to the new heavens and new earth. In the, in the same way, not a single work of our flesh will contribute to our salvation. So the call to walk by the gospel rule is a call to live and walk in the Spirit of God, in a new creation, knowing all of our right standing before the Father has been gifted to us as an act of His covenant faithfulness, knowing every good fruit we bear, we bear because it's the produce of a new creation, knowing that by the same regenerating power of God living in us and animating us, we are able to live lives that are holy and pleasing before God. So what really matters, Paul says, what really counts is a new creation, regeneration, the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. That's the rule. That's the rule he's talking about. That's the measure, the standard by which we guide our lives and measure our steps. Salvation is a gift that no one may boast, except we do boast. He says, according to the gospel rule, we boast in the mighty works of God. That which we boast in and glory in, is, that, that shows what we believe, that what we value. So our third point for this morning is from verse 14. is glory in the cross of Christ, or boast in the cross of Christ. That gospel rule that, that God does, what He what, what God does and not what we do is what counts, um, is the basis and grounds for his statement here in verse 14. We, we could put it this way. Because neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation, therefore far be it from me to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
It's because we've been regenerated. It's because we've been given new life that we believe in Jesus. And that faith unites us to Jesus so that He is the vine and we are the branches. That we share by virtue of our life in Him what what He has gone through. Now I know that's kind of hard to track, but the, the systematic doctrine is important here. The order of salvation, the ordo salutis, actually affects the way we live and worship. This is a fine example of that. The, the way we boast, what we boast in, what we glory in, is a direct result of the ordo salutis. It's important to see that the new creation is the beginning of life. Regeneration precedes faith. Flesh has to be put on dry bones. Breath has to be breathed into dead corpses before we can exercise faith. The point is, because of God's powerful working in Paul, and not his own works of the flesh, he boasts in what Christ has done, not what he has done. By faith, by union with Christ, the world is dead to him and he to the world. As, just as he said in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So because of the gospel rule, because salvation is of the Lord, Because, as the famous line goes, we contribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. We do boast. We boast not in ourselves, but we revel not in the things that we have done. We glory not in our own character or attributes. We glory in Christ. We testify to the power of the cross in Christ. And though we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We testify, we boast, we revel, we glory in those things. In the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, unorthodoxy resides and is produced in the factory of men's hearts. Uh, we, we do not believe or follow the gospel rule by nature. We're attracted to gospels that lift up man, that, that make us look good, that put our salvation in our own hands, which makes room in the church for hucksters, for charlatans, for, for salesmen, for, for con men to come in and pitch false gospels. These gospels uh, appeal to our more fleshly sensibilities, and we like to buy into them. So our fourth point is follow only the apostolic gospel. Follow only the apostolic gospel. Um, and we'll look at 11 through 14 on this point. So if believing and walking uh, by the gospel rule is so important, how can we be sure that what we're believing is, in fact, the gospel? With all the gospels, why do we have the right one? Well, because Jesus charged certain men to the task 
of testifying about him. He gave them that job, that office. It's called apostle. Of teaching the disciples all that he taught. These men were charged with the task of overseeing that the once for all delivered faith was indeed delivered to the saints. This was their job. And that's why apostolic teaching, apostolic doctrine, or what we call orthodoxy, as defined by the apostles, is so critical. I mean, the apostolicity of Paul's message is really essential in Galatians. He spends the whole first two chapters talking about his apostleship. He spends the whole time laboring the point. His gospel is the only gospel because his gospel is not his gospel, but it's Christ's gospel. So he says in chapter 1, not 8 through 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's so important. He says it again. As we have said before, now, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Uh, Paul cares about these people. His words are stern throughout, but his shepherd heart uh, shows through. These people are in danger of setting aside a saving gospel for a gospel that can't save. They're, They're setting aside the rule of the gospel for a damning rule. So let's look at 11 through 14 and hear Paul's shepherd's warning here. Uh, He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So notice a couple of things here. First, Paul personally and deeply cares for these people. He writes, he says, with his own hand. Notice how large letters I'm writing to you. Some think he's talking about the whole letter. Most scholars think he's talking about the conclusion. Oftentimes in a letter there'd be a conclusion and then the the original author who... uh, So they would write by a scribe, and the original author would sign the letter. So this, in a sense, the conclusion is Paul's signature. Um, And the largeness or the size of the letters probably has to do with his poor eyesight. (laughs) But Paul thought that the issues at hand, the issue of the Judaizers, warranted this personal and apostolic letter. He took time while in prison to send this letter to deal with this issue. He cared. He he loved these people enough to take the time. Unlike the false teachers who clearly have neither the best interest of the sheep in mind nor the glory of God. So that's the second thing we should notice here is that Paul contrasts, and he does this throughout the letter, himself against the false teachers. They live for the flesh. Paul lives for the good of the saints and the glory of God. Again, verse 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. How often do we see this in our own day? If we're honest, how often do we see it in our own hearts? If I look into my own heart, it's definitely there. It's a great temptation to try to win someone to my organization, to my system, to my way of thinking. Belt-notching evangelism is common. I mean, it's rife in pastor groups. How many people are coming? How many kids are eating pizza at the youth gathering? <laughs> what programs are attaching, uh, uh, attracting people? When you ask any pastor, even the most well-meaning, 90% of the time, how is it going? The response will be numbers related. And we all want to make a good show. We want to look successful to our own Jerusalem back home. These teachers were not after the good of the Galatians, but by trying to make them keep the ceremonial law, Paul says they weren't even keeping the ceremonial law. How could they? We know it's impossible. They just want to be able to report back to whoever sent them, we are making progress. People are growing. We had 15 circumcisions this week. It's not just that they want to look good. Paul's indictment is more severe. They do not want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. If they preach Christ, if they preach the apostolic gospel, they will, they will share in apostolic suffering. It's far easier to go with the flow. And the pressure to conform, to preach Christ plus circumcision was immense. Besides, Paul and the others, they're just radicals. They're antinomians anyway. They throw out Abraham and Moses. Paul says that they're afraid of being persecuted for the cross. If we preach the gospel rule, if we live the gospel rule, that salvation is of the Lord without an ounce of our own contribution, we will not be popular. And unpopularity, by God's mercy at this point, is about as bad as persecution gets at this time and place. And not so for history. Not so around the world. Not, not so for the future. The apostolic gospel is not popular, but it is the only saving gospel. It, it is the only gospel. Any suffering and reproach we bear, we should wear as badges of honor, as identifying marks of our allegiance. Suffering and persecution are um, marks despised by the world, but they're badges of honor for the person who carries the torch of the once-for-all delivered gospel. I've lost count of which point I'm on, but the next one is consider the cost of the gospel in verse 17. Consider the cost of the gospel. Verse 17, from now on, Paul says, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul quite literally bore on his body the marks of Jesus. He had scars from being stoned, beaten, flogged, pr- Shipwrecks, perhaps. Uh, 
speaking of defining words and lexicon, the lexicon uh, Thayer um, defines the word um, for Marx here as in this way, according to ancient oriental usage, slaves and soldiers bore the name or stamp of their master or commander branded or cut into their bodies to indicate what master or general they belong to. That's what Paul means by the words marked, branded. If anyone is in doubt as to whether Paul really belongs to Jesus, they only need look at his bare back. You'll recall from chapter 1 he said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Clearly here, someone is on his back. He's saying, get, get off my back. Quit giving me trouble. People were probably accusing him of being a man-pleaser. Paul's cutting out circumcision from the gospel because that's painful. He's cutting out the ceremonial law. He's an antinomian. Paul's trying to make it easy. Just believe and you'll be saved. Paul says, get off my back and look at my back. Who is bearing the cross of Christ here? We, we have to count the cost if we're going to walk according to the gospel rule. To be united to Christ is to pick up a cross and to be crucified to the world and the world to us. It's to bear the brand of, of a, a new king and a new master. And it really is as simple as believe and be saved but believing carries with it a whole host of life-changing realities. But they're also life-giving realities. John speaks of this sort of dual status of the believer in his first epistle, um, and kind of the glories of being a Christian and the suffering from the world in 1 John 3, 1-3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the, that's the flooring truth of Christianity. Believe and be changed in, into a child of God, one that the world does not understand because it does not know him. To me, that was, that, that, that was the most uh, amazing part of the series, uh, is the concept of our adoption in Christ. As one example, in chapter 4, verses seven, uh, 4 through 7, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
We're not just saved. We're made part of God's family, an heir. Just like Jesus is going to inherit, we inherit with him. He's the natural son. We're the adopted sons. And we come into the family. We do have to consider the cost of believing the apostolic gospel. It will wreck our lives. But we will receive a life that can't be compared to the life lived in this world. The marks of Jesus are badges of glory. It's like the trident for the Navy SEALs. They're part of a family. There's something special. The marks of persecution tell us and tell the world that we belong to a family, a different family with a different father and a Lord that's altogether different from the one that's found on this world. So the cost is great, but it is small. We taste the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, even now as we anticipate our homecoming and our inheritance. And that's the final point is just receive a benediction. From verse 18. Verse 18 says that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Calvin comments on this. He says, His prayer is not only that God may bestow upon them His grace in large measure, but that they may have a proper feeling of it in their hearts. Then only is it truly enjoyed by us when it comes to our spirit. We ought therefore to entreat God would prepare our souls a habitation for His grace. So may you both... Possess grace and experience grace. And may our spirits be the object of His saving grace. Try as we might to please Him by our own labors, grace is our only hope. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Peace and mercy be upon you, the Israel of God. Amen.